So that is your history of cannabis in the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Dose podcast, where we explore the health and wellness industry with leaders on the forefront of innovation. I'm your host, Dalton Maine, and my guest today is Dr. Amanda Ryman. Dr. Ryman was a professor for 10 years at UC Berkeley, where she taught courses on substance abuse treatment and drug policy. She's a cannabis expert holding multiple positions around research and policy around the cannabis plant. Dr. Ryman is the vice president of community relations at Flow Canna, the vice president of public policy research for New Frontier Data, and creator of Personal Plants, a multimedia platform supporting home cultivation and processing of therapeutic plants. We'll link all of her socials in the show notes below so you can find Dr. Ryman. We had an amazing time on this talk and then learned a ton about the history of cannabis, how cannabis interacts with our body, medicinal use cases for cannabis, and much, much more. Hope you enjoy this episode. But first, here's a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Momentus. Momentus specializes in sports nutrition products that are designed to optimize your active life. They are trusted by experts like Dr. Andrew Huberman, Dr. Kelly Sturette, and over 150 professional and collegiate sports teams. Momentus takes pride in having the highest quality ingredients that are backed by rock-solid science. If you're still questioning their track record, just know that over 72% of NFL teams consistently purchase product from Momentus for their athletes. When you're ready to grab some of the highest quality products on the market, go to livemomentous.com, spelled out, that's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com, and use the code DOSE, D-O-S-E, at checkout to get 15% off. Again, that's livemomentous.com. Use the code DOSE at checkout to get 15% off your entire purchase. This episode is also sponsored by BetterHelp. Let me tell you, the pandemic was a strange time filled with anxiety and confusion for a lot of us. For me, being cooped up in my house and having to work with COVID patients made me an anxious mess at times. I didn't feel like I had anywhere to go, so I looked into virtual therapy and I found BetterHelp. They partnered me up with a therapist that fit my needs, and I had massive benefit from my very first visit. So if you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private, online environment at your convenience. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions, plus you can exchange unlimited messages and everything you share is completely confidential. You can request a new therapist at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Right now, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com Dalton. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N. So quit waiting around, go get some help, people. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. All right, Dr. Amanda Ryman, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I think it would be great to, if we could just jump right in for you, the marijuana expert, to give us a little bit of a rundown on the history leading up to up to today of kind of marijuana when you can you can maybe we can generalize it in in the US but kind of give us like a general rundown of kind of when it when it came around and and kind of where we're at today with marijuana 
Yeah, wow, that is a really great place to start, right? The history. Yeah. Um, so cannabis has been used for thousands of years across the globe. It's one of the oldest medicines, and it's also one of the oldest cultivated plants, meaning that our relationship with humans, it's one of our oldest friends. We've been friends for a very long time, and cannabis has been brought around the world as a medicine, and it's traveled quite a bit. So you see native cannabis populations in Asia, um, in India, uh, in parts of the United States, in South America. And this was all because they were brought there a very long time ago. In the United States, cannabis really started to come into favor um, as a herb or a plant in the early 1900s. So prior to that, cannabis as an extract was in pretty much everybody's medicine. I mean, this was like kind of the time of little snake oils and elixirs. The ingredients of your medicine was not on the bottle. A lot of it was morphine, opium, alcohol, and cannabis, which, you know, your kid definitely stopped crying and went to sleep when you gave him his elixir of morphine, opium, and cannabis. So a lot of people were familiar with cannabis as an ingredient in medicine. But in the early 1900s, you saw an influx of Mexican immigration after Mexican independence. And cannabis as a raw plant was used in that culture for quite some time under the name marijuana. So these folks came in to places like Texas, bringing with them their marijuana, also bringing with them their unique language and customs, which of course sent the white folks fleeing into the hills and immediately thinking how they were going to control this new population of outsiders. So they took a cue from a law actually from San Francisco around opium smoking. So to backpedal a little bit, in San Francisco, you saw um, a very large Asian immigration and opium was a flower, a plant that was used by a lot of folks in that culture. San Francisco wanted to be able to keep tabs on this population, so they made opium smoking illegal. That allowed them to go into opium dens, to see what was going on, to detain people, to search people. And so in Texas, in the early 1900s, with this new Mexican immigration issue, they took a cue from San Francisco and said, you know what, they seem to really like this marijuana plant. Let's make the marijuana plant illegal. And that way we can stop them and search them and detain them and arrest them and basically have control over their freedom and what they're allowed to do. Now, of course, we have to remember that this was a time with no television, with no radio, it was very hard for news to travel um, beyond just what the government wanted people to hear. So it was really easy for the government to convince the public that the cannabis that was in their medicine cabinet was not the same as the marijuana that was being brought into the country by these Mexican folks with all kinds of accusations about it turning them into blood-enraged, crazy, psychotic people and everyone just bought it and got really behind marijuana prohibition. So Texas was the first to come on board. We saw similar laws passed in cities in Louisiana and other port cities where people were bringing in cannabis and where it was being used by jazz musicians and other artists and people of color. Again, a way to control that population was to criminalize their drug of choice. So this in 19- is, sorry to cut you off, this, this is yeah. around what time again? 
so this is the early 1900s. So 1915 was when Texas passed the first law. And then the first federal law was passed in 1937, Hmm. which was the Marijuana Tax Act. And that basically said that you can't sell or possess cannabis unless the government gives you a special stamp. They didn't give out any stamps. And therefore, effectively, everyone that was possessing it or selling it was doing it illegally. Now, we take a big break after this. So after this, cannabis kind of falls out of favor, right? It's the 1940s. Reefer madness and movies, the the propaganda movies, have really scared people and made them think that cannabis is going to make them crazy. And so you really saw folks move away from cannabis during this time. It really wasn't until the mid-50s with the beatniks and the artists in places like New York, the beat poets, Bob Dylan, Jack Kerouac, that whole group, they started to bring back cannabis as something that was stimulating their creativity. It was starting to be used in conjunction with art and music. And then that rolled into the hippies of the 1960s who were using cannabis as part of the free love movement, right? And the anti-war movement and this idea that it brings peace and harmony and opens people's minds. Well, of course, the government didn't like that either because they didn't want a whole bunch of young people with open minds who were questioning them and protesting against the war. So just like the uh, the folks in San Francisco, just like the Mexican immigrants, just like the beatniks, the government said, we can control these people by making marijuana illegal. So in the early 70s, they passed the Controlled Substances Act, and that is what put marijuana in the Schedule One category, stating that it has no medical benefit, a high rate of addiction, and is too dangerous to use, even under the uh, care of a doctor. Um, and that's where it remains today. And it made it have the highest penalties of any drug was being caught with marijuana, uh, heroin, and a handful of others. Um, after that, we saw the escalation of the drug war in the 1980s and 90s and the militarization of the drug war, where it wasn't just about arrests anymore. It was about banging down people's doors with SWAT teams and AK-47s and giving folks life in prison for selling drugs and three strikes laws and just really horrible things that led us to where we are today in our prison population. And it wasn't until the mid 90s that we started to see a shift. And this was really brought about by the HIV AIDS crisis in San Francisco. So, you know, this was a situation where this disease was mostly affecting the gay male population. Therefore, the federal government wasn't doing shit about it. And so these communities got together and decided to care for their own in any way that they were able. And cannabis was discovered to be a very useful medicine for some of the most serious symptoms associated with AIDS, like wasting syndrome, nausea, anxiety, and pain. So the early medical cannabis laws were really driven by AIDS activists that were trying to keep the criminal justice system out of their business as they were trying to treat their community members. That led to the first state medical cannabis law, Prop 215 in California in 1996. And then we saw a proliferation of medical cannabis laws as patients became the biggest advocates. And people that were against cannabis suddenly knew someone that had cancer or AIDS or MS who was benefiting from cannabis, and we started to see lawmakers change their minds on this issue. That, of course, brought about the question, what about full legalization? 
because even though medical cannabis gave access to patients, it still really didn't do anything for the criminal justice impact of prohibition. So starting to look at that, the number of people that are arrested for cannabis, the fact that people of color are way more likely to be arrested, the impact that a drug arrest has on your entire life, it was inevitable that we were going to question whether criminal justice was the right approach for people who use cannabis, especially when you had states like California, where all you had to do was go to a doctor on a corner, get a recommendation, and walk right into a dispensary. It seemed pretty odd that at the same time, somebody in another state was going to jail for 10, 20 years for doing the same thing. And it's still that way. So we've started to see a patchwork of legalization slowly spread across the country in the places you'd expect, Washington, Oregon, California, Maine, um, the places that tend to be more liberal in a lot of ways. But now we're starting to see cannabis. It's going to be on the ballot in Missouri. It may be on the ballot in Oklahoma. We see medical programs in states like uh, Mississippi. So I do think that the tide is turning and we are going to see federal legalization because just like with alcohol prohibition, it gets to a point where so many states have decided to defy the federal government that still having prohibition becomes something that's untenable. And we're almost there. But the propaganda that I talked about from the 40s and 50s runs really deep with these older Congress people. And so part of the issue we have are folks like Dianne Feinstein and Joe Biden, who just grew up in a time when cannabis was so demonized and propagandized that in their gut, they just feel it's a bad thing. And it's hard for them to get past that and do the right thing. So that is your history of cannabis in the United States. It's beautiful. Very, yeah, it's, that is, I've, I've learned more in the last 10 minutes about that than I have in my entire life. So thank you for that. It's beautiful. <laughs> no, it's something that, like, I love what you said about the, how, how we're moving into the kind of patchwork legalization and, and kind of spreading across the state. And I'm in Arkansas, so I, I already know that we will be one of the last ones to, we already have, we do have medical, um, but we'll probably be one of the last ones just due to the nature of, of our politics. Um, but with, it's funny when you talk, when you're talking about the prohibition, like in the forties and fifties, a lot of the people that I see as patients are in that that age group, right? They grew up in 30s, 40s, and 50s. And a lot of them have that mindset. Like you said, they just, in their gut, they just feel like there's just something, they, they won't accept it. And so they just, and a lot of people, I think too, which I'm interested, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I feel like a lot of people just, in their head, they just accept it's illegal, it's bad, that's it. Cut it out, it's done. Like, I don't even want to think about it. I don't want to have the conversation. If you do this, you're a bad person, you're a criminal because it's illegal. I'm curious on your, your thoughts on that and kind of uh, how, do you, how do you handle that in conversation with somebody? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, a lot of folks, so our brains do not like complicated information. We like to simplify information. So anything that we can do to allow our brains to just easily decide whether something is good or bad, we're all for it. We love it. Our human brain eats that up. So when we decide that illegal means bad or dangerous, it becomes really easy to make decisions about whether something's bad or dangerous just based on its legal status without really having to think that much deeper about it. The other thing we tell ourselves is prescription drug good. Um, so if it's prescribed by a doctor, if I'm getting it from a pharmacy, it must be safe, uh, it must be good for me, and that it's definitely safer 
and better for me than anything that's illegal. That is the story that we tell ourselves. However, when you look at reality, that doesn't make sense at all. And a good example I give folks is alcohol. Alcohol is legal. Now, I'm not here to demonize alcohol because I think substances are everybody's personal choice. However, it's pretty objective to say that alcohol is more dangerous than cannabis. Um, if nothing else, the fatality potential is there with alcohol and it isn't with cannabis. And then there's a whole host of other reasons. Um, tobacco. Tobacco causes emphysema, lung cancer in ways that cannabis has not been shown to, yet tobacco is legal. Um, and then people are dying of opiates, prescription opiates that they're getting from their doctor's office. So there's so many examples of the hypocrisy in that belief system. But to your point, um, you know, folks who are older, the older we get, the more ingrained these kind of um, shortcuts are. So folks who have been believing that illegal means bad and prescription means good for 60, 70 years, it's a lot harder for them to rewire that or to force themselves to think more deeply about that than somebody who's 25, 30, 35 years old. So unfortunately with that age group, what really kind of compels them to challenge that is if they get sick or someone they love gets sick. And then all of a sudden their brain is like, well, illegal is bad, but I love this person and it's helping them, but illegal is bad. And it, it kind of causes them to have this moment of like reckoning or awakening. And then they start to understand that they've been misled and it's almost like a light switch turns on. And pretty much every congressperson who's come around on medical cannabis has said that they did it because somebody they loved or they themselves got sick and medical cannabis helped them. And it really wasn't until they had that very immersive experience that they were able to actually challenge that idea that illegal is bad. Yeah. Well, and I think this may be a good a good transition point just from what you were talking about, because it made me think about with some of my patients, what I've noticed over the last few years, and this also just happened kind of in the general public, and you probably will be able to tell me when this started happening, but I saw a big wave of more CBD stuff, CBD products within, especially in places like Arkansas and places who are not uh, legal, fully legalized or even even before it was, or after it became uh, medically legal, um, I saw a, a wave of obviously more shops that were CBD uh, specific shops, but also patients who were uh, on these long pain regimens. They were chronic pain people who have just had no relief or were taking, you know, bottles of pills and they, I would come in and they would have a a bottle of CBD cream on their, on their nightstand. And they would use it. They were using that on their back or on their knee. And they would say, Oh, uh, my, my niece recommended me take this or my, my aunt or like somebody in a family had recommended it to them. And they were like, this is a damn miracle. Like I, it, it works. And of course, you know, it, it, for at least in my, in my experience, it seems like it works for some and not for others as most things are. But I, I think that for me seemed like kind of a, at least an introductory point into their mind of being like, hold on a second, maybe I'll think a little bit about this because it does it does work for me in this situation, right? So, yeah. Well, I, no, you're absolutely right. Um, so CBD started to kind of come into popularity for a few reasons. One is, you know, simply folks were trying to capitalize on the popularity of cannabis. And if you're in Arkansas, you can't have cannabis, but you can have CBD, 
which is from the cannabis plant. So it has that kind of cachet for younger consumers that want something that's plant-based and natural. Um, and then it appeals to older folks and people that don't want to be intoxicated because it's non-intoxicating. Um, so I think that those things really draw people to CBD and they've got a lot of marketing. So you're starting to see CBD and all kinds of things. I saw a CBD infused pillowcase. I don't know what that's about, <laughs> but you know, it's, but the thing about CBD is that because it is non-intoxicating in some ways, it's a little bit like a vitamin. You, you pretty much, you think it's working and that it's doing something. You know, there's research that says that vitamin C is good for you for these reasons. And maybe you're like, oh, I do feel a little something when I take my vitamin. But because CBD is non-intoxicating, it's, it's placebo effect is very common. Yeah. Um, and because it's not regulated, it's still a bit gray as to which products are actually delivering the amount of CBD that they say they are. Um, you know, really the only way to be sure that the CBD product is accurate um, and is what it says it is, is if you buy it from a, a cannabis dispensary, mm. because all of those products have to be tested. Um, they all have to be labeled accurately. Um, but when you're buying something from a drugstore, even if it's a reputable brand, there's no assurance um, because it's not regulated by the FDA. Now, the FDA is currently discussing that, like right now, as we speak. The FDA is talking about how they're going to regulate CBD uh, in as a food additive, as a nutraceutical, as a supplement, because none of that has happened yet. So right now, it's all kind of still buyer beware um, when it comes to CBD and know that what it says is on the bottle uh, may not be on the bottle. I'm looking for companies that maybe have QR codes on their packaging that you can scan and get a COA, a certificate of analysis to give you some confidence that it has what it says it has. But just like when I take my vitamin C, it says it has that many milligrams, but I don't know. You know, I know when I take my THC medicine, if it has THC in it, because I can feel it. So I think CBD has a lot of promise. It's been shown to be very therapeutic and have a lot of medicinal qualities, but I think we're still a little bit in that snake oil phase where there's a lot of folks trying to capitalize and until it's regulated by the FDA and we have some kind of certainty about labeling, um, it's gonna be difficult for folks to get consistent results. Yeah, no, and that, that was news to me about the uh, being, going to a actual cannabis store to get higher quality product for the CBD itself and not just like a, a CBD standalone uh, shop. So that, that was news to me. I think that'll, people will find that interesting. So can, can we take like a, a half step back maybe and just kind of mention the difference between CBD and THC? Um, and then maybe just a couple of benefits because just off the top of my head, the stuff that I've heard and I've read a little research on with CBD are the two big ones that I can think of are um, people with sleep issues or going, going to sleep and then um, inflammation. I've heard both of those things. I'm interested in if, if you know, what, what you've, what you've read and, and maybe just explaining the difference in the two. Sure. Um, so CBD and THC are both naturally occurring cannabinoids in the cannabis plant. Um, you know, CBD was kind of bred out of the market during prohibition because, as I said, it's non-intoxicating. So when you're buying your cannabis on the illicit market and you get home and it doesn't get you high, you feel like you got ripped off. So during prohibition, breeders would breed higher THC plants because that's what their customers wanted. 
Um, and because of that, CBD kind of disappeared a little bit. And then it started to come back in the 1990s with actually some breeders up where I live in the Emerald Triangle in California uh, who knew that there was a lot of medicinal value in CBD and wanted to bring it back. And that's really when you started to see a resurgence. Um, unfortunately, now the market still favors high THC products. Um, so when looking at the difference between THC and CBD, as I mentioned, they're both cannabinoids. They both bind to our endocannabinoid receptors in our bodies, um, but the CBD does not bind to the receptor that causes the intoxication. Um, only THC does. And so that's why CBD is not intoxicating. We have endocannabinoid receptors all throughout our bodies. And for folks that don't know what the endocannabinoid system is, it's very similar to our nervous system. It is responsible for maintaining homeostasis or balance in the body. So um, things like appetite, sleep, sex, pain, um, when these things are in dysregulation, you get conditions like pain, insomnia, um, you know, lo loss of appetite, nausea. And so the endocannabinoid system regulates all of these functions in the body. And it does that through endocannabinoid signaling. And endocannabinoids are just like the cannabinoids that come from the plant, uh, except that they are coming from your own body. And they bind to receptors in your body. And that is the signal that helps regulate your system. So when you are introducing cannabinoids from the plant, whether it be THC or CBD, they are doing the work of those endocannabinoids and helping to regulate your system. So a lot of the symptoms that cannabis helps are symptoms related to some kind of dysregulation in the body. Hmm. So I think that's it's a good transition point in talking about the symptoms. Could you mention a few of the, maybe we could talk about just in general, general health, mental health, some of the use cases of cannabis. Sure. Um, so, you know, CBD and THC work very well together. Um, you know, the, the whole plant contains a lot more than just THC. In addition to CBD, there's other minor cannabinoids like CBG, uh, CBN, CBC, THCV. And then there's also terpenes, which are the smells in the cannabis plant that are in every plant. So pinene is a terpene. It's in uh, pine trees. It's also in cannabis. Uh, lemonine is another terpene that's in cannabis. It's also in lemons. And if you know anything about essential oils, uh, smells have therapeutic benefits. So I know we'll talk about my lovely knee surgery, but when I was in the recovery room, I was feeling a little bit nauseous and they gave me peppermint smell to smell in the, in the recovery room, which helps with nausea. So all of these different components of the cannabis plant add to the therapeutic effect. Um, some uh, uh, terpenes are pain relievers. Some terpenes help with relaxation. Some terpenes give you energy. And so those things combined with the cannabinoids is what is going to give you the whole plant effect. When we talk about specific symptoms that we see to be helped with cannabis. Uh, pain is a big one. And not really localized pain, although localized pain can be very well affected by topicals, cannabis topicals. You mentioned inflammation and CBD cream, really great for arthritis or other types of inflammation. However, nerve pain, uh, neuropathic pain, which is very hard to treat with traditional pain medication, responds really well 
with cannabis. And so folks that had a very hard time treating their pain consistently with opiates and other types of pain meds find relief with cannabis. Pain is probably the case we have the most evidence for regarding cannabis. Second is probably anti-nausea. So that uh, this again was discovered with the HIV AIDS community where nausea was a big side effect of the disease and then cancer chemotherapy. You know, nausea being one of the big side effects of chemotherapy and finding that cannabis is very beneficial for that. Um, and then spas uh, spasms. So MS, um, epilepsy, other conditions, Parkinson's that cause spasms or tremors. Uh, cannabis has been shown to be very effective for treating tremors and spasms in those conditions as well. Do you know why that is? You know... See, this is the, and I was just going to get to the unfortunate thing yeah. is that that pesky schedule one status of cannabis has very, very strictly limited our ability to conduct research. Um, and it really hasn't been until the last five years or so that we've seen more robust medical cannabis research being conducted, clinical research, because for the longest time, we couldn't do any of this research on human beings. Well, and I think that I actually I wrote this down from earlier. The how how does how do we get that out of the Schedule One? Like, I mean, as all of these different states are becoming fully legalized, I just I, I at least envision that just making sense to to pull it down. But obviously, it's not happening. So I'm just curious of what has to happen for that to actually come down. Well, pigs have to fly. Yeah, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. But maybe. Um, so it's really interesting because when the Controlled Substances Act was passed in 1972 and it was put in Schedule One, the group Normal formed, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, N-O-R-M-L. And they're the oldest advocacy organization for cannabis. And they started petitioning the federal government in 1972 to change the, the scheduling of cannabis. What ends up happening is the federal government, I think, has 10 years to respond to these petitions. So they would basically <laughs> they basically would wait till the very last minute. And then they would come back and say, you know, we don't have enough research on the be medical benefits of cannabis to warrant us opening the case and doing the investigation into whether we could reschedule. And then they would file another petition saying, well, we can't do the research if it's schedule one. So how are we supposed to do the research that gets to, to reevaluate its schedule if we can't do the research because it's schedule one? Another 10 years would go by, um, then they would again get the same response. Um, in 2002, Americans for Safe Access formed, which is the oldest cannabis patient advocacy organization. And they also worked with Normal to try to get it out of schedule one, and nobody has been successful. Now, there's a call now, and, and several of the federal legalization bills that have been introduced call for descheduling, which is really the right thing to do. I will say that there is a fear among a lot of people that instead of descheduling cannabis and taking it out completely, which is what they should do, they will reschedule it to Schedule two. Schedule two drugs are only available from a pharmacy. So you can only get Schedule II drugs um, with a doctor's prescription from a pharmacy. They have to be FDA approved. And given that the FDA has had a very hard time figuring out how to approve a whole plant, 
uh, having it be Schedule Two would basically put the kibosh on access to whole plant medicine um, outside of any kind of extract that was then FDA approved and sold through a pharmacy. So that's why a lot of folks are very adamant, myself included, that cannabis be descheduled, taken out of the Controlled Substances Act completely, instead of moving it down, which actually may put more restrictions on it if the federal government decides to, to regulate themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a world where we could have 50 state legalizations, but still have a Schedule One federal illegal drug, right? There is. I mean, I, I do think that the feds are going to regulate before Arkansas goes legal. No offense. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that that's, that's happen. fair. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do see federal legalization happening. My estimate is 2025 um, because, you know, interstate commerce is becoming really important from a sustainability perspective. You have states like New Jersey uh, legalizing cannabis. Michigan has legalized cannabis. These are not places where you can grow cannabis sustainably year round. And yet we're forcing them to because you can't import it from other states. When we look at the agriculture in the U.S., most of it is grown in California and then shipped to where it needs to go so that you don't have to grow it indoors in New York in the winter. So I think that some of these things are going to push the federal government to relax a little bit on cannabis. I just don't see it happening before the midterm elections. Yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because I, th I think one thing for me, I, I actually I went to school in, in Colorado and I remember around the time that it went, that it, it became legal. And I think there was a, you and you will probably know better than I will on the, the specifics of it. But I know that a large a big reason why I think there was more pull behind it was uh, the understanding that a lot of the revenue or some, at least a, a, par a portion of the revenue was going to go towards schools. And I know that like, and that was Colorado and that could be the same in other States. I don't know. Um, but I think that I think probably turned some people's heads whenever they realized like, Oh, these people, these pot smokers are, are actually giving, giving some money back to the schools. Maybe this isn't such a bad, this is such a bad thing to think about. Well, I think that that's a really good point. And you're absolutely right. And each state has taken kind of their own approach. Um, you know, in California, um, you know, they decided to do more towards community reinvestment and environmental cleanup um, related to unregulated cultivation that had happened during prohibition. And so, yes, the tax revenue becomes a reason for people that don't consume cannabis and maybe have kids and want to appear to be good citizens can still support legalization. Because, you know, the fact is, is that people in Arkansas are smoking weed. Um, they're buying weed, they're smoking weed. It's not like when you don't have legalization, the market doesn't exist. It does still exist. And then folks start to question who should be making money off of this market. Should it be, you know, not that I believe this, but in their minds, should it be this drug dealer, you know, who's, who's marketing to my kids, which is not the reality, but that is in the minds of a lot of citizens. Um, or should it be a store that's going to charge taxes and is going to ID at the door and that tax revenue is going to go and make a better playground and, and school and, and higher teacher salaries for my kids? It, it allows them to get past that illegal is bad mentality and start to think, well, this is bad when it's illegal, but if we make it legal, it'll be okay. Um, and so it's, it's a justification that works for a lot of folks is the tax revenue.
Yeah. Well, and I, and it just made me think too, whenever you were talking about it, I think, and it's probably not as common with, with cannabis as it is with other drugs, but I think, uh, what's interesting to me or what's at least a, uh, a positive thought with all of the, the legalization is the, the, the purity fact of being able to go to a store and get that as opposed to, um, you know, things on the streets that can be laced. Uh, and I, like I said, it's probably not as common with cannabis as it is for some other drugs. Um, but it is a fear. And you would think that as a, or you would, you would hope that as a parent, maybe that would give a little bit more uh, persuasion for you to start supporting that side. Well, I think it's, it's challenging this fallacy that prohibition is somehow drug control. You know, prohibition, you don't get to control anything. I mean, when we had prohibition of cannabis, we didn't get to control who was selling it and where they were selling it and, you know, what kind of marketing they could do and what kind of products they could sell and nothing was tested and we didn't know the potency of anything. So regulation is what really gives you control. And I, I do think that people are starting to see that. And one really good example, I know that, you know, cannabis flower, it's kind of hard to like taint cannabis flower or pass something else off as cannabis flower. But you may remember a few years ago, we had the whole vape epidemic with the, with the uh, vape carts, right? Yes, the the yes. vape cartridges. And those were being purchased from unlicensed sources. So it may be hard to, you know, taint cannabis flower, but it's definitely not hard to have contaminated oil that people put in a vape cart and sell uh, with vape cartridges because yeah. you don't know what's in it. And if you're not buying it from a licensed regulated store where they're testing it and they're, you know the potency and you know the purity, you really don't know what you're getting. And we saw that uh, when people were getting really sick from using unregulated vape cartridges. Wasn't it? Do you remember what it was? Wasn't it some sort of poison that was in them? From they were buying them from uh, out of the, out of states. Yeah, there were. Well, they there was a couple things that they thought was going on. Honestly, there's probably more than one thing. Yeah. Um, I think there was something to do with the actual hardware, and then there was also something to do with um, one of the other additives that they had put in there to help with the viscosity. Um, because again, you know, there's no regulation, so they could really put anything they want in there They're They just want to make margins. So they're going to do it as cheaply as possible. Whereas in the regulated industry, you don't have a choice. Like your product fails, it's not going on the shelf and you've lost a lot of money. So there's really strict protocols that are followed in the regulated market, which is why we don't see things like vape illness happening with regulated products. Yeah. Well, I want to go back a little bit to some of the some of the symptom relief people can get from cannabis because I made a note about the cancer. That was another thing that I think I'd noticed more in my patient population of people actually using cannabis was in cancer patients. Um, you know, I think one thing that that I don't think you mentioned in there was the the fact that with chemo, usually what we see is a lot of patients become very they have no appetite. They don't want to eat. And a lot of times people can get, you know, get the munchies and they actually eat a little bit, which is so important on chemo as your body is so worn down. You know, I'll have people who, if they're after chemo, they'll, they'll eat a couple of saltine crackers and that's about all they can eat, which is just not sustainable. And that's really hard to heal that way. So I know that the nausea and the pain, but also developing some sort of an appetite is really, really beneficial using cannabis in cancer patients. Oh, absolutely. And again, that was something that was discovered by the HIV community because wasting syndrome was a very common side effect of AIDS and people were using cannabis to stimulate their appetite um, so that they could eat. And, you know, same with chemotherapy and other conditions as well, where people have problem, people have a hard time keeping things down. 
And nutrition is really important when you're trying to heal. So uh, absolutely, appetite stimulation, uh, big uh, symptom management with cannabis. Yeah. And speaking of symptoms, you had a meniscal repair. Was this last week, right? Yes, last Friday. Yes. And you straight up told your doctor, I'm not taking opioids, correct? That is correct. And this is not the first time. Um, I've had a few surgeries. I have degenerative disc disease um, and I have all kinds of other arthritis and muscular skeletal issues, but I'm also very active and I like to work out and do things that my body doesn't always like to do. So I injure myself. Yeah. Um, So I had back surgery uh, in 2018 and that was a spinal fusion. Um, and I was in the hospital for a couple days and I told them I was bringing cannabis tincture into the hospital with me, which I did. And the nurses were really amazed that I was using less pain. Like, you know, they have the morphine drip in you and then they come and ask you if you need more and they adjust your dose. And the nurse was like, there's a couple other people on this floor that had the same surgery as you and you are using far less painkillers than any of them are. And I know it's because I was using cannabis oil. Uh, It was 100% helping. And I was using very high doses. So something that's interesting is that I have found, this is just N equals one, um, that when I am hurting, when I am in pain, I can tolerate much higher doses of THC than when I'm not, you know, it's almost like when the THC has a job to do, it doesn't give me the same intoxication Mm. uh, as it does when it doesn't have a big job to do in my body. So I was taking very large doses, but you know, you can't uh, fatally overdose and you don't have the same side effects as opiates. So I know people don't like to talk about it, but the constipation side effect of opiates is horrendous. And when you, when you combine that with the anesthesia and the impact that that has on your system, it is very uncomfortable and I really do not like it. And so that one of the big reasons that I tried to avoid opiates is that reason. So yes, I choose cannabis. I'm very open about it. Um, I did the same thing this time. I was outpatient, so I didn't have to stay in the hospital. Um, I took one hydrocodone when I got home from the hospital and I took one before bed. And the next day I was on cannabis oil and, um, and that's all that I've taken since. And it really works amazingly. However, I will tell people out there, if you use cannabis and you are having anesthesia, stop the cannabis at least three days before your anesthesia. Cannabis can interfere with anesthesia and you need a lot more. If you're a cannabis consumer, you need more. Um, so tell your anesthesiologist, don't be afraid. Even if you're in illegal state, You'd rather be honest about it than wake up during surgery or not have the anesthesia that you need to get through surgery. So um, I just tell people that because it's not something that's talked about. It's not something that doctors will tell you, but people who have had it happen know. And if you Google it, you can read uh, you know, medical articles about it. This is even true with Novocaine at the dentist. Uh, so you'll need a lot more Novocaine to get you numb if you're a regular cannabis consumer. So that's just my little PSA because I feel like it's very important, but nobody talks about it. Yeah, no, I've never, I've never heard that before. I think that's great. I'm sure people will take that away, and, and that's that's a great, it's a great tip. So the, uh, so it's uh, roughly three days before. What you said? Yeah, at least three days before, um, especially if you're a regular consumer like I am. 
um, then you know you really want to give your system a few days to clear out before you use anesthesia. And then I told my anesthesiologist, of course, I live in Northern California, and he's like, yeah, everyone has to tell me that um, because everyone up here consumes cannabis. But it is really important, uh, and I just really hope I want folks to be safe and, and not have bad experiences. Yeah, no doubt. Well, so uh, two things, if you can, uh, would you mind sharing kind of what your stack was that you're that you were using and are currently using for for pain relief? Like what your what kind of maybe? Uh, and I also wanted you to talk about too. You, you made a point about dosage and how you are, you know. And I think it's important to say you're you're an N of one, and so the dosage is not for everybody. But I'm curious if you could speak on on dosage as well. Sure. So I like tinctures post surgery. Big fan of tinctures. Uh, cannabis tinctures, when taken sublingually under the tongue, you'll feel the effect in about 10 minutes, um, but it has the lasting power of an edible. So I find it's a really good combination of both quick onset and long lasting, and it's really easy to administer. Um, you know, you're basically just taking a dropper and putting it under your tongue. So even if you're out and about, uh, if you're in bed, no matter where you are, it's very easy to take a tincture. Um, tinctures are usually in olive oil um, or some other kind of oil. If it's an alcohol-based tincture, be careful. That can burn when you put it under your tongue. Um, so I really like uh, olive oil-based tinctures. And you also want to look for tinctures that are whole plant. So I talked before about how the plant has a lot of different therapeutic components in it. You want a tincture that's going to most resemble what that plant was in its raw form. Now, tinctures are also great for dosing because they come in ratios of THC to CBD. So you can get something that's pure THC, you can get something that's pure CBD, or you can get something that's like five to one THC to CBD, or 10 to one, or one to one. So then you're able to get both the impact and the benefits of CBD and THC in the same tincture. So it also helps people that might find THC beneficial, but a little bit too intoxicating, to uh, moderate that intoxication by having CBD in the tincture as well. So look for whole plant tincture, uh, look for the ratio. Um, if you're not used to, to THC, start with something that has more CBD in it, but with just a little bit of THC. THC is where you're really gonna get your pain relief. CBD reduces inflammation and that can lead to pain relief, right? But the kind of brain signaling pain relief, that you're going to want some THC in there. Uh, both of them are going to have a sedative effect, most likely. Um, people who do feel something from CBD say that it just makes them feel relaxed. Um, but again, if you're not used to THC, start with just a little bit of THC in that tincture and mostly CBD. Now, you also might see tinctures that say they're raw tinctures. So just quick botany. Um, cannabinoids like THC and CBD in the plant, in the raw plant, are in their acid form. So they're THCA, CBDA, but they're non-intoxicating, even the THC. In order for that THC to become intoxicating, it has to be decarboxylated, which basically means it has to be heated. When it's heated, that acid drops off and it becomes THC. So if you want to get a good dose of THC, but you don't want intoxication, if you can find a raw tincture that is THCA, that will give you the health um, management benefits of THC without the intoxicating effect. 
So it'll still give you pain relief. It'll still help um, with, you know, other things, uh, appetite stimulation, anti-nausea, but you're just not going to feel high. And then CBDA is the acid form of CBD, which doesn't get you high anyway, but CBDA is a really powerful anti-inflammatory, um, even more powerful, they found, than the decarboxylated version of CBD. Are, are these, so in are, terms are, of dose... Are these, are, oh. I was just gonna say, are are those pretty well um, marketed in these in the shops? Like, I've I, this is the first time I've heard about it. Is I'm curious if people are pushing that in the shops. So in the dispensary, yes. Mm. In a CBD shop, they probably will have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to sell anything that has THC in it. Um, although we should talk in a minute about Delta Eight and hemp derived Delta Nine because I'm sure you've yeah. seen that pop up in Arkansas. Um, but in terms of dosage, if you're using a raw tincture, you really can take as much as you want. You can't overdose on that because it doesn't have any intoxicating effect. If you're using a THC activated THC tincture, then you know a dose is usually 10 milligrams of THC is one dose. Uh, people that are newer to THC, I usually recommend starting with like two to three milligrams because you can feel it within 10 minutes with a tincture. It's not like an edible where you have to wait like two hours before you can take more. If you still feel pretty good in 30 minutes or 20 minutes, you can take an additional dose of a tincture. Now, I take a very high dose, like I said. One, because I have a high tolerance. And two, because I'm using it and as a substitute for opiates. So I'm looking for something that is going to substitute a Vicodin or hydrocodone, um, which is going to be pretty powerful. So I was using, um, at, at a time, about 500 milligrams of CBD, which was mostly for inflammation and swelling and things post-surgery. And also because CBD promotes bone growth. And because part of my back surgery recovery was fusing uh, my spine over the plate and the screws, I wanted to accelerate bone growth. So I used a lot of CBD, uh, about 500 milligrams, three or four times a day. <clears throat> and then I was using 300 milligrams of THC at a time, Wow. Uh, about three or four times a day. Uh, again, I wasn't feeling high at all, uh, but it was substituting for the hydrocodone. Now, this was for back surgery. For this knee surgery, I really didn't have a lot of pain. So I was using more like 20 milligrams of THC and 20 milligrams of CBD at a time um, because I just, you know, I, I like the minimum effective dose. So the minimum amount I can get away with and feel good, that's what I'm looking for. And so, you know, obviously my pain levels were very different having spinal fusion versus having meniscal repair. Right. Well, I, can we just jump right into the, the Delta-8? Can you explain what that is? Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, federal government, there's a loophole. So, the 2018, the federal government passed the Farm Bill, which made hemp federally legal. Hemp is the same thing as cannabis, but the federal definition of hemp is that it has less than 0.3% THC. So, you can go online right now and order hemp flour from across the country. It's completely legal. You can have it sent to your house. It's legal in Arkansas for you to possess. It's legal for you to consume. Um, however, these very mad scientists that we have in our world discovered that you could take CBD from hemp and through chemical process, turn it into an analog of THC called Delta-8 THC. 
And Delta 9 THC is what is the intoxicating cannabinoid in cannabis, in the cannabis plant. So they were able to make a chemical that for all intents and purposes mimics Delta 9 that they call Delta 8 that is completely legal in all 50 states because it is derived from hemp, which is federally legal. Take it a step further, they've now figured out how to synthesize Delta 9 THC, so identical to the Delta 9 in the plant except made through a synthetic process from hemp. So if you can now go online and order Delta 8, Delta 9 products, and a whole host of other THC products, Delta 10, uh, HHC, these are all hemp-derived cannabinoids, meaning they're not naturally occurring in the plant. They take a cannabinoid that is naturally occurring in the plant and then through a synthetic process, create a chemical that is exactly the same effect in the body as the one you would find in the cannabis plant. However, like CBD at the drugstore, there's no regulation. There's no regulation. So there's no rules about marketing or labeling or testing. Uh, you can buy Delta 8 vape pens pretty much at every corner store uh, in California, and there's no regulation around what can go into that liquid. And basically, people are ordering these products online, um, gummies and edibles and vapes. They even take the hemp flower and they spray Delta 9 THC derived from hemp onto the flower, and then people are smoking it. So I just want to say that it's very possible that these are harmless things. It's very possible that a chemically derived you know, twin of Delta 9 THC derived from hemp doesn't do anything different to our bodies as Delta 9 from the cannabis plant. However, we don't know. We have no research on it. We have no long-term studies. We really have no idea. So I would tell folks out there, I understand the attraction. I grew up in Indiana and we had no access to cannabis at all. So I understand that if I were in a place like Arkansas and all of a sudden I could order weed gummies online and it was completely legal and they were sent to me in the mail and it was completely legal, like I get why that's attractive. But we just don't know the long-term health impacts of these chemicals. They're just not tested. So just be careful. Um, you know, really be aware that a lot of these companies are just trying to make money and they're just trying to look as close as they can to actual legit products, but they're not. Yeah, I'm from uh, I'm from Lafayette, Indiana, by the way. Uh, I'm from Lafayette, Indiana, by the way. Ooh, Carmel. Carmel, nice. Carmel, Indiana, right here. Nice. Yep. Fellow Hoosier. So, are there are there any are there any case studies that you know uh, of Delta Eight? I haven't heard anything, but I, any no. case studies of like negative? No. Um, well, I mean, I haven't heard of anybody getting sick from Delta 8. Uh, I've actually heard from consumers that they like the effect, that it feels kind of like Delta 9, but less kind of paranoia and anxiety around it. 
So it's very possible that this could be something that is a good supplement for people that are looking for some of the effects of THC but are having some negative side effects. That's very possible. We just don't know. And, you know, one of the things to be, you know, selfish for the people that are still in jail for cannabis, one of the things that threatens legalization is when things like this just get out of control and kids are getting access to Delta 9 and people are getting sick from adulterated vape pens. It makes those folks that are maybe willing to challenge their notion of illegal equals bad, it pushes them way back, um, you know, in, in time. So I feel like we have a responsibility until everybody's out of jail and this is no longer a criminal offense to be responsible citizens around cannabis consumption. It, we owe it to the people that are still in jail. Yeah, no, it's a good point because people are going to attribute all of these these secondary items that aren't necessarily cannabis sold at a regulated store. They're going to attribute those things to cannabis. And if there's any bad things that pop up, it's going to continue to push them back. Like you said, I think too, a little, yeah, a little side note, yeah. I think a little side note, uh, just from my own stuff, I think for people out there that uh, struggle with uh, protein powders, like a, a whey protein that's difficult on your stomach, hemp protein is a great protein source and it tends to be a little bit easier on the stomach for people who can't tolerate other sort of proteins. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Or if you're vegan and want yeah. to use protein powder um, and are trying to avoid the dairy, uh, then yes, hemp protein is amazing. And hemp is a superfood. So, you know, we're talking about it in terms of the medicine that is cannabis and kind of the CBD, but let's not forget that hemp seed, hemp oil is one of the most complete nutrition, nutritional sources you could have, you know, the protein, the good fat, the carbohydrates, the fiber. So, you know, this aside, if you're somebody who's out there thinking, I live in an illegal state, or I don't have any health problems, or I'm not interested in getting high, but you still are curious about the medicinal benefits of the cannabis plant, it's all cannabis, hemp, cannabis, it's all cannabis. It's just defined based on the amount of THC. And so hemp nuts and hemp protein uh, is very, very good for you and is definitely a way that people can experience the benefits of cannabis regardless of where they live. Yeah. Could you touch on briefly the different ways that cannabis can be consumed and kind of what that digestion looks like time, time wise, or even just the digestion process talking about like tinctures versus edibles versus smoking? Sure. So there's a couple different ways to consume cannabis. Inhalation is the most popular. So inhalation, we're talking smoking. We're also talking vape pens. Uh, we're also talking vaporizing cannabis or concentrates, which is also known as dabbing. Those are all methods of inhalation. Inhalation has the fastest onset. So whether you're vaporizing it or smoking it, um, you're going to feel it within 20 seconds to a minute when you consume via inhalation. And then the peak happens about 20 or 30 minutes, and then it subsides. So the dose response is pretty fast. You peak, and then you become sober. And because of this, it's a very popular method for people that have severe pain or nausea and are looking for immediate relief, right? You don't want to take something and have to wait an hour to feel better. Uh, with inhalation, you feel better right away. And it's also very popular among people that don't want it to last for a very long time. And this could be for all kinds of reasons, your lifestyle, you know, what you have going on and you know, your responsibilities, but people that want it to wear off fairly quickly. 
So that's inhalation. So again, smoking, vaporizing, dabbing, concentrates, all under inhalation. And then we have ingestibles. Ingestibles are your beverages and your edibles. And ingestibles are good for a lot of reasons. One, they have a very sustained response. So with an ingestible, you're going to feel the effect for quite some time, which is good for people that have sustained pain and they don't want to have to medicate themselves that often. They want something that's going to last for four or five hours. Ingestibles are really great for that. One of the problems with them is the slow onset. So you aren't going to really feel the effect usually um, for about an hour. And so that can make it hard to dose. Uh, it can make it hard to sit through the symptom while you're waiting for the relief to come. And sometimes people end up overdosing themselves because they feel like, oh, I don't feel anything at all, and then they take more. So ingestibles can be really good for people that want sustained relief, but you have to be really careful about the dose. Now, a good medium is sublingual, which I already mentioned the tinctures. Sublingual is really great because it has the sustaining power of a, an adjustable. So you're going to get a few hours out of that relief, but it has a faster onset like an inhalable. So 10 minutes, you're going to feel the effect. This allows for really fast symptom relief. It also allows people to titrate their dose better. Now, one caveat to ingestibles that I will mention are beverages. So cannabis beverages used to act like edibles. They took about an hour for you to feel the effect. But there's a technology called nano emulsion, which you don't have to know what that is, but just that it's a way to break down the cannabis particles small enough so that they're absorbed into your system faster so that they have an onset that's more like a tincture or a sublingual than an ingestible. So, you know, one of the reasons that they did this, honestly, was because people want to substitute for alcohol. They want to something that they can drink that's not an alcoholic beverage that's going to still give them an intoxicating feeling that's on par with how fast they feel an alcoholic beverage. Because if you're hanging out with your friends and they're all drinking beer and you want to drink cannabis and they drink their beer and they're like three beers in before you even feel your first cannabis drink, it's not really a good comparison. It's not a good substitute. But if you can feel the effect similarly to your friends, who are using alcohol, that's going to be a true substitute. So the technology in drinks is trying to push it more towards onset being more like alcohol. But that's a caveat. Um, so we have inhalables, we have ingestibles, we have sublingual, and then we have topicals. So topicals are really great for people that do not want intoxication, but they want the benefits of THC, like pain relief. A lot of topicals have both THC and CBD, and then sometimes they have things like Arnica and other types of essential oils and herbs that help with pain relief. And just like it sounds, they're applied topically to the skin. They will not get you high. They will not show up on a drug test, but they can be very useful for localized pain. So I think I mentioned arthritis, which I have in my feet. I use topicals. I've used a topical on my knee before when I had inflammation. You can use as much as you want. You can't overdose on it. And like I said, you're not going to get high. Um, topicals are a great gateway to cannabis for older folks um, who are a little bit nervous about ingesting something, uh, but they have localized joint pain. Using a topical makes them understand how they can get benefits from cannabis and not have to take pharmaceutical or over-the-counter drugs. And then they get interested in things like tinctures. 
Uh, tinctures are really great for folks, like I said, who want to be able to titrate their dose, but don't want to smoke. Um, and that smoking is a big barrier for a lot of people because they're just not interested in that. But a tincture under the tongue is a really great way to get that same dose titration. Do you know in states like in states like Arkansas, for example, to get a topical cream that has THC and CBD, I'm assuming you probably still have to have a med card for that. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, just curious for for patients and other. And I'm. I also was going to ask you on that in that same vein. The do you know where the education is going in in med school or where? Um, as I know, there's the, right now, of course, there's specific doctors that people know. They just you go to this doctor if you want a med card, they'll get, they're going to get you hooked up. I'm curious if if you know if there's much of a of a push towards more education or or towards just general PCP have, being more knowledgeable about cannabis. Uh, there definitely is, and it's been happening for a long time. There, there's been a frustration among doctors who get out of med school and discover cannabis and then do their own research and become really angry. Not only that they weren't taught about cannabis, but that they're not even taught about the endocannabinoid system. Now, granted, we just discovered we had an endocannabinoid system in the mid-90s, so it's not like it's been around forever, but they still don't teach about it in med school. So really years ago, in the early 2000s, there was a doctor, Mark Ware, who was at McGill University up in Canada, and he was really spearheading continuing education for doctors and lobbying to integrate cannabinoid-based medicine into traditional medical schools. I think he was definitely more successful in Canada uh, than in the United States because the Schedule One status, it makes it really in conflict with what doctors and med schools choose to prioritize in their education because according to the federal government, it has no medical benefit. So why would you teach about it in med school? So it kind of becomes this double-edged sword. So you have seen doctors take it upon themselves to create continuing education courses and other opportunities for doctors to learn. I will say that I think the most opportunity for doctors to learn about cannabis doesn't exist in the United States. It exists in countries like Israel, where they've been doing clinical research on cannabis for decades. So I think that there are opportunities, but in terms of you know primary care physicians getting this education in their medical schools, until cannabis scheduling changes and it actually has recognized medical value at the federal level, it's likely not going to happen. Mm. Well, uh, Amanda, as as we're kind of getting here towards a close, I would I would love to give you a chance to talk about maybe some stuff that you're working on that the audience could maybe play a part in, whether that's helping advance some of these legal, uh, these legal acts or whether you, you know, whether it's about the, uh, is it new frontiers data? I know you've recently had a position with them, right? Right. So, well, my, my day job, um, is as chief knowledge officer at new frontier data. So we're a data insights company for the cannabis industry. Um, you know, we help people learn more about who their consumers are optimize, you know, where they choose to seek out licensure, uh, you know, understand better what's happening in the industry and their com competitors, and then what the potential market sizes of the industry. And this is all data driven. So if you're somebody out there that's, you know, thinking about getting into the industry and maybe starting a business or you have a cannabis business and you're looking to expand or understand more about who your consumer base is, those are all things that we do. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't know how we can get people to contact me. Maybe you can put my email in the, um, 
is there like a podcast description? Yeah, yeah, we'll do we'll do a show notes in the bottom, and we'll share like whatever whatever URLs, Perfect. your website, you know, email, the things like that. Perfect. So we'd love to hear from you at New Frontier Data. Um, and then my other passion is actually psychedelics. So we'll have to come back and talk about psychedelic plants uh, on this podcast as well, because interestingly, psychedelics are fast tracking through the biomedical research and approval process way faster than cannabis ever did or ever could for all kinds of reasons that we can get into that have to do with FDA approval and what it takes to get there. So that's another really fascinating topic that I'd love to come back and talk about. But my focus around psychedelics is really around plant conservation. Uh, so, you know, I've been growing my own cannabis for over 25 years. It's something that's been very important to me, developing a healthy relationship with the plant as a medicine. And so I feel that if people want to get into psychedelic therapy, they should grow their own psychedelic plants. Uh, even if they're not going to consume them, I think it's important to have mindful consumption and to understand the source of your medicine. We are very divorced from the source of our food and the source of our medicine, which I think adds to mindless consumption. So with psychedelics, which are not frivolous, they're very powerful. Uh, people need to have healthy relationships with them. And for me, that starts with cultivation. So I do run a psychedelic plant nursery uh, where people can buy seeds and cuttings of completely legal psychedelic plants. And I also developed a platform to bring community together around conservation of psychedelic plants called Sacred Garden. So we'll inc include all the URLs, but if you're a cannabis industry person, we'd love to hear from you at New Frontier. If you're into psychedelics, check out Personal Plants and Sacred Garden, um, because I think there's a big opportunity here for plant-based wellness if we can keep it in the hands of the people and give them the opportunity to develop those relationships without having to go through so many gatekeepers and, and red tape in order to get access to, to plant medicine. So uh, that's what I will continue to do. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, as we, as we close out, Amanda, do you have any asks of the audience? Grow a plant. Uh, even if you're in a place where it's not cannabis, if you're in a place where cannabis is legal to grow, grow a cannabis plant. If you're not in a place where cannabis is legal to grow, grow a medicinal plant. That can be a psychedelic plant like uh, Chacruna or Datura or Morning Glories are psychedelic plants. Um, passion flowers are psychedelic plants. Or it can be a medicinal plant like sage or marshmallow um, or calendula. Uh, but that experience of growing medicinal plants or growing your own cannabis, it's therapeutic in ways you can't even imagine. From, you know, the biome and the microbiology of the soil, uh, to being outside in the sunshine, to developing a relationship with something that you are nurturing. It's an amazing experience. So my ask of everyone out there is to grow a plant. So of, of that list, which one is the easiest to grow? Because I am horrible at keeping a plant alive cactus, we, cactus. we're going to set you up with a huachuma a huachuma cactus um and that is completely legal to grow uh and it is very easy to grow because it is a cactus beautiful that is what i need i love your i love your <laughs> motto i love your motto amanda plants plants over pills and i i hope that that continues to grow and people see the benefits of of plants and I want to thank you for your time of hopping on the podcast with us. And I've learned a ton today and I know, I know the audience will as well. So thank you for, for what you do and thank you for taking the time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'd love to come back.
Yes. And like you said, we're going to have to do a round two on the, on the psychedelics. Cause I'm sure you have, you have just as much to say about those. And I, I want to know more about those as well. So, uh, well, thanks again. And, uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening. Before you go, if you did enjoy this episode, we'd be honored if you could hop on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. It helps us out a lot. Also, check out our sponsors and links provided in the show notes for some great discounts on products. Sign up for our newsletter at compoundhp.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or even if you just want to complain about my personality flaws, you can email me directly at dalton at compoundhp.com. would love to connect with all of you. Until next time, be happy, be healthy.